0: Uh, so there's a, if, you're, if you ever watch the Food Network, there's a show on the Food Network called Restaurant Impossible where a man named Robert Irvine will go visit struggling restaurants in an effort to diagnose their problems and then make them successful again. That's the goal of each episode. And so in every episode, he comes in and he'll overhaul the menu, he retrains the staff, he brings in a construction crew, and they'll make the whole restaurant over. It looks entirely different by the end than it did... At the beginning and then they have a grand reopening where all the community is invited to come and see what's changed. But then if you watch the whole episode even through the credits, at the very end of the credits they'll put a little note on the screen that will tell you how that restaurant is doing about three months later, you know by the time it airs, just a little update. Often the news isn't good the old problems have resurfaced, we find out. The staff is still unhappy. The customers are dissatisfied all over again. Sometimes the restaurant has shuttered its doors, and it's closed up for good just a few months later. And the lesson, if, we're, you know, if we pay attention, I think the lesson's pretty clear. You, the health of a restaurant is much deeper than simply the physical facade or even the items on the menu. It goes deeper than that. And we could say that about any organization. You can't just slap a new coat of paint on something that is unhealthy beneath the surface, right? Any organization has got to be healthy deep down. Well, what if we asked that same question about the church? If we said, okay, what makes for a good, healthy church? It it can't simply be that the building is clean and the air conditioning works and and the programs are well run. I mean, those things are fine. But none of that actually speaks to what the church is at the deepest level, what the heart of the church is. And so, y'all, this morning, uh, we could very well, we could make a list of all the things that make for a good, healthy church. That'd be a long list, a significant list. But what I want us to do instead today is to look at a picture of a healthy church. to take a little snapshot from the Scripture. There's a lot of places we could turn to do this. But if we ask the question, how does a healthy church function, especially when things are not going, maybe as well as we'd like for them to go. What does it look like to be healthy, to be God-honoring? And then after we see it, my hope is that we'll pray for it and make it our aim as Harvest Church to be the kind of church that we see reflected in the book of Acts today. So I I mentioned this already. Today's a very special day. We're affirming and ordaining deacons for the first time at Harvest. So what I want us to do this morning, I want us to look in Acts chapter 6 at how the office of deacon essentially got its start. And it's going to be clear, I hope, how, how all of this fits together in the, the forming of the kind of church that is healthy and that honors and pleases God, the kind of church God desired from the beginning. Okay? So, so for context sake, if you've ever read through the book of Acts, you know it pretty much starts off with a bang. Acts chapters 1 and 2, Jesus Promises the Spirit ascends to heaven, then the Spirit descends at Pentecost, and it just, there's an explosion of evangelism. People are hearing the gospel and being saved. Jesus, uh, his life and death and resurrection are taking center stage. Everything the apostles are saying and doing, it's just, it's all turning to gold, it seems, early on. It's wonderful. The church is growing in Jerusalem like nobody's business. Even in the face of persecution, or the religious leaders step in and start trying to squash this thing, they can't, no matter what they try. So early on, the the, the appearance at least is, there is conflict, but it's all coming from the outside. These folks who want to squash the early Christian movement. Well, but here in Acts 6, we get a picture of conflict from within that's got to be dealt with. We see that in verse 1. Acts 6, 1. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. That's the problem. That's the issue that, we, uh, that we're dealing with here. Okay. Now, why is that such a problem? It may not seem like that big of a deal. One of the hallmarks of the early church from the very beginning is how they cared for one another. It was an unmistakable dynamic within the early church. Those who were poor and in need were brought in. They were provided for. Their needs were constantly being met with great love and generosity. The church was doing an amazing job of this. It got the attention of the surrounding culture. No one could believe how they loved each other. And so they're meeting each other's needs, and especially they're meeting the needs of the widows within the congregation because that was a, uh, a, those, their widows were common, more common even than they are now, And their needs were great because typically in that culture, women didn't have means of income apart from their husbands. And so the great need was being met. But as the church in Jerusalem grew, this issue arose. In the daily serving of the food, the Hellenistic widows were being neglected in favor of the native Hebrew widows. Um, It helps maybe to, to understand this. At the beginning, at the very beginning of Acts, all of the converts to Christianity were Jewish. We really don't see Gentiles coming in to the faith until Acts chapter 10. So they're all Jewish Christians now, but even then they've got distinctions among them. Some of them were called native Hebrews because they primarily spoke the Aramaic language, and they were more closely aligned with, with historic Judaism. They were living in Jerusalem, old school Israelites. That's, that's kind of their mentality, okay? Um, but then there were also Hellenistic Jews. And that means that they primarily spoke Greek. And most of them lived outside of Jerusalem. Some of them lived out in Gentile territories, even. And so that we've got these, these native, kind of more um, Hebrew Jewish people, and we've got these more Greek-speaking Jewish people. Now, you could see how there could be some abrasion there. Culturally, there's the potential here for the insiders to view themselves as insiders and the outsiders are, you know, even though we're all together here, we're not exactly the same. And so there's cultural division at work and it's resulting in, honestly, it's, it's bigotry and favoritism towards some and neglect of others, okay? Now, I wanna just stop for a second so that we can acknowledge something together. The church, both then and now, the church is full of sinners. It's all we've got, actually, right? Those are the only kind of people that can apply for membership, are sinners. And what do sinners tend to do? We sin. Now, as Christians, of course, we are forgiven of all sin. We are redeemed by the blood of Christ. We are being transformed by the power of God's Holy Spirit. We are putting off the old self and putting on the new. We're not resigned to be what we used to be, no. But we we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that somehow this ongoing pressure that comes from our flesh, this ongoing potential for temptation and sin, isn't present. And y'all, it's true here at Harvest Church. that There's always for us the potential for conflict, for division, for neglect, and, and all the rest. So the question is not, is there sin within the church? Of course there is. The question rather is, how do we respond to sin? And how do we overcome it in the spirit of Jesus, by the grace of God? How do we do that together? That's the question. And that was the question then in Acts 6. Look at verse 2. So the 12, that's the apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now think about this. The church in Jerusalem numbers in the thousands already at this point. But they get them all together. Family meeting. All right. The apostles call them together. We're going to get this issue solved. But we're not going to do it ourselves. And the apostles say this this issue matters. We've got to get it solved, but we're not going to be the ones who get down into the details here. And why not? Y'all, this, as we read this, it may come across as as kind of arrogant, uppity a little bit, as if the apostles think they're too good. They're, They're above serving tables. And so put somebody less important in charge, right? That's not at all what's going on here. The the church's ministry to the poor was not some secondary issue that didn't really matter, that the apostles remain above it all, no. But if they were to go down and do that themselves, if the apostles were to say, okay, we're going to roll up our sleeves, we'll serve the tables, we'll make sure it gets done, they would have been neglecting the very thing that Jesus had called them specifically to do. The apostles had been been sent out by Jesus himself primarily for the ministry of prayer and of the word. That is the proclamation of the gospel. And recognizing that that was their responsibility, the apostles make the right decision. They do something that for me personally is hard to do. They delegate. They delegate the authority. Select from among the brethren, from among the church, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, and we're going to put them in charge. And look what happens. Verse 5, the statement found approval with the whole congregation. Everybody liked this idea. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Now, there's something interesting in this story that the, Luke, the author, he never actually tells us how they solve the problem. Those are details that we might prefer to know. But he doesn't tell us. We get no details on food distribution strategy. But that actually speaks to the point of what this scripture is about. What's what's this story in here for? The point was never the plan. The point is the people. God ordained that faithful people would be raised up to address this issue of sin and conflict within the church to ensure the health and the mission of the church. That was the point. And at no point in in Acts chapter 6 are these men officially referred to as deacons? But the pattern is unmistakable. It is the Lord's will, both then and now, it's the Lord's will that faithful people be called into this special office for the purpose of serving the church. That is the will of God as spelled out in the scripture. And so y'all, as we, we, we've we considered now a pattern given to us in Acts, what I want to do the rest of our time is I really want to give us um, three significant examples questions, specifically as they pertain to this this role, this position of deacon. I want us to look at what a deacon is, then what a deacon does, and then finally, and maybe most importantly, why does it matter? Why does it matter? What a deacon is, what a deacon does, and why it matters so much. So y'all, and you, and you don't have to turn there unless you're just super quick, but in First Timothy 3, in First Timothy 3, the apostle Paul describes the office of deacon, the person of deacon to us most clearly. And notice, I want you to see the, the attention given to faith and character. Faith and character, reputation. That's the focus here. 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. Paul says, Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. but holding to the mystery of the faith, with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing And great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, we're not going to dig into every specific qualification here today, but even without doing that, there's something I think is is clear even as we read through the list, kind of, you know, even from 10,000 feet. It's the same thing we saw back in Acts chapter 6. What kind of person is fit for this task? It's the same thing the apostles wanted when they had to deal with this issue of neglect in the food service. We want men of good character and reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom. And and Paul echoes that so beautifully here in this list of qualifications. Y'all, it'd be very natural, perhaps, and very human of us, that if we were going to raise up people for offices within the church, right? whether it's pastor, elder, deacon, or whatever, that we might put together a little list of our own qualifications that would make sense to us. Okay, ideally, we'd want somebody with a master's degree. We'd want somebody who's successful in business, right? We want natural leaders, people that, you know, who, who've got good, strong, loud opinions, people who can earn their seat at the table in that regard, right? Now, there may not be anything wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with a degree or a or business success. But we need to be super clear today and always. This is not how God esteems people. That's not how God esteems his servants. Whether a deacon is successful in the eyes of the world or not is irrelevant to the conversation. Is he faithful in God's eyes? That's the question. Is he faithful in the eyes of God? Has he shown himself to be faithful as a servant of the church. Would everybody, in Acts 6, the whole congregation gets together. The apostles say, pick seven from among you. Which means these men had a reputation for faithfulness and wisdom and service already. And so Paul says, that's what a deacon is. And if a deacon is is raised up and serves well, he says that he obtains a high standing in Christ Jesus. That's the, that's the, the pedigree That's the reward we're talking about, regardless of of the diplomas on the wall or any other such worldly thing. It's a high standing that is in Christ, that is granted by God's grace to one who serves well. That's what we're after. That's what we're looking for. That's what a deacon is. Now, as to what a deacon does, y'all, very, very simple definition here that's given to us in the scripture. It's given to us in the word itself. The word deacon means servant. A deacon serves. And this is distinct a little bit from the elders. And we're not going to get too deep in the weeds here, but the elders of a church, in this case, that's that's Jay and Paul and myself, elders are called to be shepherds or pastors who lead the body and oversee the teaching. Uh, Deacons are not tasked with the same mantle of leadership that elders are. What deacons do, they embody Jesus Christ to the church in the way they serve the body, they are servants. And so if we were to speak very practically on this, deacons may be given the task of serving the needy from within the congregation, as we saw in the book of Acts. If there are widows or people who are shut in, people who are sick or in financial need, deacons then step in as hands and feet to see to the practical needs of the people in the body or to the practical needs of ministry, the care of the building, assistance with finances, whatever is required... That uh, that needs strategic and faithful service. Uh, deacons strategize and develop local missions so that the church is able to be a blessing to the community. Anything that that involves service, whatever it may mean, to serve and upbuild the church. Then the deacons are there on the front lines to engage it. Right? So that's what they do. They they serve. But y'all, there's a third question that I want to give most attention to. Why does this matter? Why spend a whole sermon on this? Um, This takes us back to our first concern at the beginning of this message, when I posed the question, what is it that makes for a good, healthy church? What is it that makes the church pleasing to God? If y'all remember, in Acts 6, what the problem was, what the real problem was at its root It wasn't just that there was a snag in the food distribution. Because in that case, the apostles could have simply said, let's find somebody who's good at logistics to go down there and untie the knot and get the problem solved. But no, that wasn't the root of the issue. The problem was that there was a sin issue that was threatening the unity of the church. Sin was creeping in and creating division. The haves and the have-nots based on very human, cultural, sinful mentalities, right? And so the apostles didn't say, well, let's just find somebody who's smart, who can figure it out. No, they said, let's raise up faithful men and let's put them in charge of this. Men who will address this issue in the spirit and the wisdom of Jesus. Faithful men who will serve to ensure the unity and the health and the mission of the church. And y'all, ultimately, that's the goal here, is preserving unity. This is a big deal. It's not just a problem that needs solving. It's sin that must be addressed, and it's faithful men raised up to do it, so that at the end, the result might be that the church would continue to shine brightly as God's light in the world, so that the church would continue to be the gold standard within the community for what it means to love one another. Nobody can love like the church. Let's make sure that it stays that way. So that the church may grow in love for one another rather than shriveling up or dividing and falling apart. Right? Sin, like what we see in Acts 6, sin like that left unchecked is going to create two different churches. That's, what, that's the result. That's inevitable. Unless something is done and faithful people step up to accomplish it. And so, y'all, when we, when we raise up deacons at Harvest Church, just as we see the pattern in Acts, this is a specific gift God has given His church for the glory of His Son, Jesus. For the ministry of the church, both inside and the ministry that comes uh, beyond our walls as we, as we shine light into the dark places of our world. That's the goal here, that Jesus is glorified, that His church is healthy, and therefore His church grows in a way that pleases him. And that's exactly what happens in the narrative. As Acts chapter 6 unfolds, Luke never tells us how the distribution problem got solved. we were just meant to assume that it does. But notice what Luke does tell us that comes as a result of God's grace in raising up this body of servants. It's in verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Even those who were formerly against the ministry of Jesus were now coming to faith in Christ. This is an amazing thing. Luke doesn't bother to tell us the widows got fed. We assume it. What Luke does tell us instead is something far greater and more lasting. The word of God kept spreading. The ministry of the church was sustained and advanced, partly because faithful servants served faithfully. Faithful servants served faithfully. And y'all, here in a moment, we're going to follow this very same pattern, what we just read, what we see on display from the earliest time of the church. We're going to pray for and ordain five men Members of Harvest Church uh, to this office of deacon. And as we close this message, I want to give us our, really our, our focal point, our bull'seye, in case we have any thought that we're simply raising up men to take care of business, to take care of practical things, right? At the bottom of it all, that's not what we're doing here, and I hope we see it. We have elders and we have deacons at Harvest Church. They serve different functions but we're we're aiming for the same goal. We're looking to the same bullseye, okay? Elders are called to be the shepherds of the church, 1 Peter 5, and our main task is to lead everybody, to shepherd everybody, to the true shepherd, the good shepherd. Jesus called himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And so for Jay and Paul and for me, that's our great privilege That as shepherds, we're helping y'all to get somewhere. And and the goal is not us. The goal is him. And so in everything that we do, we're trying to point you to Jesus. And that's our great privilege. Well, in much the same way, that's what a deacon is trying to do as well. Different task, but same outcome. I mentioned this a moment ago. The word deacon means servant. Y'all, That's from the original Greek that Luke is writing here in, in Acts. That uh, that word is diakonos. It means servant. And that's the very same word Jesus actually used when he spoke about himself. In Matthew chapter 20, listen to what Jesus says very famously and very wonderfully. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the ministry of Jesus Christ in one sentence. I did not come to be served, but to serve. And that word is the same word for deacon. Jesus came to deacon us, to serve us, and to give his life as a ransom for sinners, to give his life in our place. And so, when when a deacon serves the church, it's never for the sake of look at me, congratulate me, thank me. No. When we serve, we serve to say, look to him. Look at Jesus. Look at the the one who deaconed by serving us, coming to us, laying down his life for us. So that in dying, he might give us life in his name. Y'all, that's the goal. That's why we're here. We shepherd to Jesus. We serve unto Jesus. And that's ultimately what makes for a healthy church. There's a long list of things we need to do and ought to do better at Harvest Church, and that list will always be there. I lose sleep over it, I promise you. That list is always there. But in the end, what makes us a healthy church is that God sheds his grace on people whom he now calls his sons and daughters. And by that very same grace, he raises up faithful men and women and puts them into service. And we are so richly blessed at Harvest Church to esteem this precious office, this role of deacon, as those who will serve, not for their sake, but for his sake and yours. What an awesome gift. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray this morning, we pray together this morning, that the importance of all this would, would not be lost on us. Lord, this is, uh, if, if we grew up in church when we, we were probably around, we, we just assumed deacons or elders or committees or, or some some measure of offices in the church, maybe it didn't mean much to us. It didn't mean anything to me growing up. But Father, I pray this morning that we would have such a clear vision of how meaningful and necessary you consider all of this to be. That, Lord, you have seen to it uh, to raise up faithful people who will serve faithfully for the building up and the unity and the ministry, the health and the mission of the church that we might glorify you in all that we do. And Father, I pray this morning for us, for Harvest Church, that we would have this very clear sense of what the bullseye is. Uh, Even here in a moment, as we lay hands on these men, Lord, that they are not the goal. They are simply serving for the sake of the goal, which is that more and more people would come to know you, Jesus Christ, to receive your grace for salvation and to grow in your grace into discipleship. Lord, let everything we do be to that end. And I pray this morning, Lord, for us, that seeing Jesus Christ as the the true and ultimate deacon, the one who came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as our ransom. Lord, that we would look to Jesus this morning as the one who has loved us before we were lovable and died for us while we were yet sinners so that we might be made alive together with him, once and for all, forever. Lord, would you you grant us this morning to look to Jesus with the eyes of faith, to receive him, to thank him, to follow him. And Lord, let all that we do be uh, to your glory in Christ. Lord, make that the the measure of our health here at Harvest Church. Let us always be aiming for for Jesus and his glory, for his mission. Lord, and let that, I pray, be be pleasing to you uh, as you build your church. We pray in Christ's awesome name. Amen.